This message by Sam Shin, entitled The Struggle for Contentment, was recorded at Wellspring Church on May 12, 2019. The text for this message is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Today's passage is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The reading of God's word. You may be seated. I thought I would uh, give a message on contentment for Mother's Day. And contentment is not simply a message for mothers, as most of us, all of us know. It is something that every one of us struggles with. So whether you are a mother or not a mother, whether you are married or not married, whether you are a woman or a man, we all do struggle with contentment. However, I do think that women struggle with contentment differently or with different nuances than men do. And that comes with the fact that God has designed men and women uniquely and distinctly. And so very specifically, I'm going to speak to the women of our church, and you might be thinking, why is a man speaking about contentment for me as a woman? There are a few reasons. One is I'm married to a woman. I was born of a woman. I have many women in my household, many, (laughs) many, of many generations. But even more than that, The Bible is sufficient to be able to address people of all different lives and circumstances. So I do think that, and I hope you will see, that what I share about today will come from Scripture, from God's Word. And then I've done some reading, a little bit of reading, on just from women's perspectives. And I was reading a book by Melissa Kruger called The Envy of Eve. And in it, she describes one of the great challenges of women, which she says which is essentially, again, the issue that all of us struggle with, is placing your satisfaction in lesser things that were never created to bear the type of hope that we hope it would bear. She describes a woman who is standing before an ocean, and she's desperately thirsty, and she takes a big glass of water, reaches down to the ocean floor, and scoops up with that glass all this ocean water. And all of us, in seeing that, thinking that she's going to quench her thirst, would say, no, do not drink that water. The ocean is a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It has many purposes. We can have fun with it. We can enjoy its beauty and its majesty. But one thing you must not do is drink from that ocean, because should you drink from that ocean, you will get more thirsty. And should you drink drink more and more, you you can die from it. And in the same way, that is equal to the struggle of contentment. The idea that to take something that is wonderful and beautiful, created by God for us to enjoy, and to think that if we should take it into our souls and think that that's going to satisfy us, 
it actually leaves us and you more longing, more thirsty, more desperate, even to the point of death. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 is often considered to be one of the classic texts of biblical contentment. And in it, it's so much that I've decided to preach from the same text for two weeks, this week and next week. And this week, I'd like to talk to you specifically to the women, but I do think this crosses all boundaries. But so again, you're going to have to bear with me because I'm speaking to women, but I'm also speaking to everyone. And in it, we remember three main points about contentment. The first is the loss of contentment. And there I'm going to go beyond Philippians all the way back to Genesis. And then secondly is the struggle for contentment, which we see in this text. And then finally, the hope for contentment. So the loss of contentment, the struggle for contentment, and the hope for contentment. The loss of contentment we see in Genesis 3. And so how do you gain contentment? First is you have to understand and know that you are discontent, that there is a lack of contentment in your life. And until you grapple with that idea, you won't know how to overcome it. The master war tactician and general Sun Tzu says this, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So if you want to really know how to overcome the lack of contentment, you have to understand that this is your struggle. This is your personal struggle. And you have to understand why does this happening to me? Not just simply let it come to your life, but actually wrestle with this and say, I don't want to be here. This is not right. Something is amiss. Something is wrong. Genesis 3 gives us the best picture of where all of this discontentment comes from. It really is the prototype of a loss of contentment. We're going to look back at the garden, especially once sin enters into the picture, and see what took place. I can't tell you how often, if you've been with me long enough, you know how many times I go back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 1 and 2, because so much of who we are was structured and planned out from the very beginning, designed in this early stages of our humanity. And we see in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the writer says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. One thing to know, and there's so much here, and we've studied this text time and time again, but you can always go back to it and find something new. It's amazing and startling in that way. And one thing to note about this passage is what took place earlier. God created Adam. He created Eve. Prior to this moment where Eve took of the tree and ate of it and gave it to her husband, there was no sin. So at the point that Eve was talking to the serpent, she was absolutely satisfied and happy. 
She wasn't walking around saying, I'm missing something in my life. I'm so alone. This guy is not satisfying me. I'm missing something. He wasn't, she wasn't like that. She was actually content and satisfied. So the big question should be, why does she take the fruit? I mean, if you, if you feel as though you're happy and have everything, why would you be looking for more than what you already have? And I see four distinct reasons as to why she took this fruit, even though she was happy and satisfied in the moment. First, physical attraction. The fruit looked delicious. It looked better than any other fruit. We don't really know whether it was delicious. I actually have a feeling it wasn't delicious. Have you ever seen a really beautiful apple and you think, boy, this is going to be great. You bite into it and it's mushy. That is so disappointing and discouraging. Well, maybe the fruit, we don't know what the fruit looked like. Maybe it looked like dragon fruit or jackfruit. It was just really distinctive. Or maybe it was just plain looking. We don't know. But one thing we know for Eve, according to verse 6, this fruit was very special looking for her. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and here's the key phrase, and pleasing to the eye. So something about this fruit, at least for her, was it drew her in because it looked good physically. It was pleasing to her. Secondly, is that there's a tempter's allure. Satan plays a key role. His words, according to verse 1, are so deceptive. He is craftier than any other beast. He knows exactly the right words to say, the right nuances, the points of sarcasm and questioning of God. Did he really say this? So he knows exactly what to do to say, to at least pique her interest, regardless of whether it's not that it's sinful, but that she's... She's brought in. She's seduced. Thirdly is that there's the person's attention. If you give a tempter enough time and actually sit there and listen, eventually you will succumb to that temptation. It will happen. You know how it works. You know that if a moment's glare accidentally is left to staring fantasizing, imagining, it shifts over from a temptation to a sin. It doesn't take long. You have to run. Puritan writer and pastor William Gurnall says this, if the Christian lets the object of temptation draw near, Satan anticipates that his scheme will soon be effective. Therefore, it is our desire not to yield to sin. We must not walk by or sit at the door of the occasion. Do not look with a wandering eye at the beauty by which you have been taken captive. This assumes beauty. So you look at something and you're actually drawn to it. Jesus calls our eye the lamp of the body. So when we see a man or a woman who is physically attractive, maybe a car, maybe a home, maybe a church building, you look and you're first drawn in. Are we staying too long? Are we captured by the beauty so much that we've been taken captive? Eve stayed too long to listen to the lie. She wandered and she sat there. And if she didn't run, which she did not do, she would succumb. The last one is really sort of the clincher of it all, and it's covetousness. 
Covetousness is the desire for something you do not have. One writer describes that the opposite of contentment is not discontentment. The opposite of contentment is covetousness. Covetousness is when you have an attraction, an allure, an attention to something, that desire becomes so powerful and so overwhelming, and suddenly we need, we need that thing. We need that person. We need that experience, that relationship. It's no longer something that is simply good. It's something of a, of a desire that controls our minds and our hearts. In Eve's case, she was satisfied with God, everything that she had, and suddenly the words, you will be like God, was so alluring. Now here's the thing about what Satan said, is that when he said, you will be like God, the interesting point is that she was already like God. You know, she was created in God's image. Adam was too. So they were like God, created in his image, but Satan locks on to the idea that that's not good enough. There's something else. Whatever that something else is out there, if I could only get that, I'll, I'll be happier than where I am today right now. And despite the fact that she was already happy and satisfied, she was not satisfied enough. This is the tragedy of the loss of contentment. Contentment is not your dependence on circumstances or possessions or position or power, because if that was the case, Eve would have never sinned. But she already had everything. She took because she simply wanted something more, believing that what God had already blessed her with was not enough. That is the lie. The lie is that God has already given you all that you need, and you're actually happy and content. But the lie is that, no, you need more than that. You need much more than that. Remember David's story. This was God's condemnation of David and his sin through the words of Nathan the prophet. When Nathan, uh, when David had committed adultery and murder, and when Nathan had confronted David, this is what Nathan says to him. And I gave, and this is God's words through Nathan, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. So God's heart is that he wants to give. He wants to pour out blessing upon blessing to his people. In fact, he wants to give beyond, as Paul says in Ephesians, far more than we could ever ask or imagine. But David, who had everything, everything, the one thing he didn't have was that one woman that he was looking at across the rooftop, seeing this woman Bathsheba. And so when Nathan begins to confront David because he has sort of an angle, he gives this parable. And some of you know this parable. It says, now there came a traveler to the rich man and he was willing to take he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Covetousness is not just wanting something you don't have, but it's also wanting something you don't have while failing to see that you have much of excess of everything. That is 
the tragedy of covetousness. And if you've ever cared for a friend or a family member who is so sucked in and enslaved by envying and wanting what someone else has, and you look at their life and you say, friend, you have so much. I mean, look at how much, how many blessings you have in your life and they can't see it. All they can see is that one thing they do not have. That is covetousness. And we all struggle with it. That was Eve's plight. Again, notice the people who are struggling with covetousness are not people who are poor. They're very wealthy. David was wealthy. And he had everything. But he didn't have that thing. That one thing. Everything else he had, but that one thing he didn't have. And he would do anything to get it. This is the great mistake that so many have and we have. Eve thought she was happy and satisfied because the created thing, the fruits, was what gave her the happiness. That's what she was stuck on. If I eat this fruit, I will be happy. She was already happy. I will be happier. But what she failed to see tragically and what Satan deceived her and tricked her on was that the fruit never gives happiness. It sucks it away. It's the maker of the fruit that always gave the happiness. And she just couldn't see that. It was the creator of the created thing. When we place our hope in created things, do not be surprised when they fail you. Created things are husbands and wives, friendships, careers, our cars, our stock portfolio, our retirement funds, our travel and vacations, any single thing we hope that is going to make us, oh, I need this rest. If I do it, I'll be okay. And in a couple of weeks, my family and I are going to go on vacation. You won't be seeing us for a few weeks. And um, up until that point, I am preaching. I've been preaching every Sunday, and I'm leading worship this Sunday and next Sunday. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to go full on in so that when my vacation comes, I can go, oh, now I can really relax. The danger with that is you, you relax not just from your job, but you relax from God. And how many of us, when we go on vacation, we think it's a vacation from God. I don't have to go to church. Praise God, I could just relax. I don't have to have, I don't have my quiet time anymore. Oh, thank you, Lord. I have to read the Bible. I have to pray. Oh, that was such hard work. See, that's because we are thinking that something, even prayer, reading the Bible, the church, friendships, ministry, all of these things are what gives us our joy, our satisfaction. What a lie. Satan has been telling that lie from day one, and he continues to do it, and we still believe it. It's what we all face when it comes to the loss of contentment. It's not based on having too little or being abandoned by God. Quite the contrary. If we could only step back and have some perspective, we would see just how much we have, how blessed we are. But we fail too far often to see that. And if we could only see that behind that feeling of, oh, I wish I was part of that friend group, or I wish I just had 
this position so I could get more money to be on that next income bracket to be able to afford this and get this. That's the, the craftiness that tantalizes our soul to want good things to be what satisfies us and to become excellent things. You know, the excellent things are all of the Lord himself. It's himself. He is most excellent. And everything that God created is good, but we must not sort of flip those around or we will never find joy in those things. One more quote from Melissa Kruger. She was describing a few years ago some friends and her, they were at a park with their children. They usually met at this fenced park that has slides and swings, really a great playground, fun sandbox for all the children to enjoy. And I know some of you are in that stage of life. You're bringing your kids there. And just next to that playground was a, a field where sometimes they let the older children run and play. But next to that field is a road. And since there were often young children in the mix, Many times they would have to limit their play to the fenced areas. One day the children were asked to be allowed to play outside the fence. And all the moms agreed, no, that's not a good idea, because they didn't want the younger kids to want to be out there as well. And so they said, no, for this day we're just going to stay in the playground area. So rather than enjoy the freedom that they had in this place, all the kids and they, you know, they're the swings, the sandbox, the slides, things that they would ordinarily love doing. They just sat by the fence, staring out of it like this the whole time. And they sat that way, stood that way from beginning to end till they left. When you, when your heart chooses to complain, to be discontent, to be frustrated, you know what happens? You don't enjoy anything. The great good things, the fellowship of being with other kids and playing and having fun, that just gets lost. And in its place is just this, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, and I'm going to show the world that I'm angry and frustrated, and I'm unhappy, I'm going to show people I love, I'm going to show my husband, I'm going to show my friend, my mother, my father that I'm miserable. And they are miserable. But who brings that misery? Is it God because he hasn't opened the door for them to enjoy anything for their safety, for their good? Coveting is that heart. And how often we are standing by that fence, looking out with all sorts of joys and pleasures and treasures in our back, just open for us to enjoy and to be satisfied with because our parents, our God, let us enjoy this life. We're just there saying, I wish I was out there. Women, this is the struggle for contentment. It's the failure to see the rich blessings of what we have now, what God has given to you, the joy and blessings of life, of the Lord of a marriage, of friendships, of parents, of children, young children, of older children, of adult children. All these blessings we fail so miserably to enjoy while we stare longingly through a fence so busy in our hearts, coveting what we do not have, and we're so miserable in the process. This is why Paul deals with our hearts then, now moving forward back to Philippians 
verses 11 through 12, where he writes, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is talking about the struggle for contentment in all situations. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from prison, a Roman prison. Talk about struggling for contentment. He must have been. He's battling it. Because Eve shows us that you can struggle for contentment when you're happy and satisfied and comfortable. And Paul is in this place struggling for contentment where he is brought low. One of the blessings that we always have whenever we go to Africa is to meet people who struggle for contentment and overcome it in Christ when they're brought low. For the Zimbabwe team, one of the women that you will meet is Jane. She's the RST coordinator in Zimbabwe. And you hear her story, and she is a woman who is mother, who has lost her own children, who has faced her own impoverished conditions. But she will go out of her way to rescue other children, to do whatever it takes to care for people and to love people while they're low, while she's low. And the joy that you see, again, I think when you go, I hope you see this, you look for this. Why are you, why do you have so much joy in the midst of poverty? I think, uh, Tracy, you're going to see this. Why do you have joy and, and contentment when you're so low? The answer has to be, what Paul writes about here in verses 11 through 12. There is this struggle for contentment. It is a struggle. Paul uses the word learned. And he, he says there's a secret that he's learned. This word learned is in the past tense, meaning it, it's not a moment. It's not like, okay, I get it. Contentment is learned over time through the battling and the wrestling and the dealing with life's difficulties and sorrows. It's a lifetime struggle. And lest we think that contentment just comes immediately and it, you never have to struggle with it again, we all know that's not how it works. That's not how Paul struggled with it. He knew how to be brought low. The word, the phrase brought low is very similar to the idea of humiliation. It's to lose reputation and status. Philippians is about this. Chapter 3, he talks about how he worked so hard to gain accreditation. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, really a, a tribe where the King Saul came from. He was the Jew of Jews, and yet he says in the midst of it all, it's trash, it's rubbish. For Paul, his reputation was brought low. And then in chapter 2 of Philippians, he says that's because his God was brought low. God, who Jesus, who emptied himself, made himself nothing, took on the very form of a slave, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So what Paul is saying here is that contentment must have this struggle or you will never understand contentment. You must struggle with contentment or you cannot be content. I know that sounds almost self-defining, but it's in the struggle you gain contentment. The person who doesn't struggle, who just simply lets themselves go and stands at the fence and says, I'm not going to enjoy anything in my life because that person has something 
They got the promotion. That person's the one who's married. They have children. They have children who behave well. They're always looking at something that goes well for somebody else, but for themselves, it's misery. That lack of struggle leads to a lack of contentment. It is the emptying of yourself and making yourself nothing like Christ. It is the recognition that I had all this, but now I've lost it. I'm still okay. Unless you experience loss of yourself, unless you are humiliated and rejected and are not wrecked by it, unless you understand that you do not deserve status and privilege and good things in your life, you will never be content. Once you think, I deserve it, I, I'm entitled to it, this is unfair, everyone else gets treated a certain way, I don't. It is in this fire that this, in this fire and the struggle that has forged the beauty of the power of contentment. Contentment though, as Paul says, is not just in the humiliation, but it's also in the abundance. The Greek philosopher Plutarch describes the problem of abundance this way. Long before social media, he says this. The owner of five couches goes looking for ten, and the owner of ten tables buys up as many again. And though he has lands and money in plenty, he is not satisfied, but bent on more, losing sleep, and never sated with any amount. Wow. I, I'm, I'm laughing because this happened to me last night. I was, I could not sleep. Cause I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about church buildings. And, um, I've been thinking, you know, it's not getting built fast enough. And why not? And I started thinking, and I, you know what's interesting is as I could not sleep. I had to read, I started, I got up, I started reading a book, and this is around one in the morning. And, um, and I, just FYI, I didn't even plan this illustration. The Lord just, boom, this is you. I just do not have peace. It's still a lot of worry and a lot of discontentment, even though it was only two years ago that we didn't even have a building. This, this, this is the reality of the human heart, the heart that is still struggling. And God shows us that this is what happens to so many of us. Listen to what God tells Israel that caused them to turn away from sin. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was filled up. Therefore, they forgot me. Hosea 13.6 It's when you are full, when you are filled, when you get all that you've hoped for, be careful of getting the career and job you want. I think sometimes we tend to think, if I only get married, if, again, if, if I get into that school, if I get an A on that exam, if I get a boyfriend or girlfriend, if I get that child, there's always that if. Once I get there, then life will be so good for me. But, Everything in the Bible says that in those instances, those are the most dangerous times, is that those are the times we forget God. Why? Because we are so still self-reliant. We still think it's my work, my labor, my intellect, my connections, my power, my goodness, my merit, my religion, my faithfulness 
that gets me to the face, to the places that I want to be. And we never feel like we have enough. The latest fashion trends, they pull us into that. Technology, maybe air fryers, pull you into that. You know, certain types of cars. It's so easy to look over and suddenly feel as though in the midst of our abundance, we are lacking. It can, it can show up in so many different ways. You know, you might not even be complaining about your own child. You're actually very content. Like Eve, you're a happy clam. You know, you're so happy. But then suddenly you hear about someone else, your friend's child's success in school. Their mathematics skills are one level higher than your child. And suddenly that happy clam who's so happy for your child is, wait a second, what is my child doing wrong? Why are they not trying? Oh yeah, it's because they have a messy room. If they only clean their messy room, then I'm going to go and tell them, first you've got to clean your room, then you've got to go and uh, join this program and do this work, and you, you need to be get better grades, and you need to get... Ex- oh, it, it just steamrolls, snowballs. Because suddenly, just hearing one word of someone else doing better launches a ca- uh, just this avalanche of critique and discontentment and frustration. Maybe you see another husband who treats their wife in a certain way. Especially, maybe they, are, they happen to be the PDA physical affection person. So they are at church, they have their arm around their wife. And then you're looking at that husband thinking, man, my husband never puts his arm around me in public. If he did that, I know I would feel so much better. He would really love me. I wish my husband loved me that much, but he's not affectionate. And suddenly, starts makes, can make you feel covetous and angry, irritable, frustrated. I'm not saying that. And if this, maybe we'll talk about husbands next week. But uh, you know, there there can be a, that sense of a lack of contentment, and it it destroys our souls. We will struggle with contentment for our whole life, but there is hope. We're going to talk a lot about the power of contentment in verse 13 next week. The most, probably, I don't believe this is an exaggeration, the most misused verse and misquoted verse in the Bible, oftentimes on the bottom of the sneakers of athletes, basketball players, Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And also someone who's running a marathon, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. We'll talk a lot about that because that verse is all about contentment. But, the hope for contentment is found in other parts of the Bible. Mothers, women, the loss of contentment started with a woman alone in the garden with a serpent. And we see the hope of contentment so clearly for another woman who is alone with a man at a well. In John chapter 4. This man offers far more than any male companionship or romantic liaison. The Samaritan woman at the well tried to find her contentment in her reputation. But she was judged by her own people. So she had to sneak in during the hottest time of the day where no one drew water. Because she was so concerned about what people thought of her. She had a reputation of, oh, that woman. As well, she had placed her contentment in having relationships with men, many different men who are not her husbands. 
She tried to find her contentment in her religion by doing, saying she was so focused on which mountain to worship on, Mount Gerizim versus Jerusalem. All of this, despite her efforts, she came up so drastically short when it came to contentment. She was not happy. And listen to what Jesus tells her in John chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Her contentment came at a price. Jesus, who was perfectly satisfied. There is no one more content who has ever lived in this world than Jesus Christ, God the Son. But Jesus, who is perfectly content, was unwilling to yield that contentedness to anyone except for the sake of saving us, who are absolutely discontent. And he became forsaken. You know, that contentedness was broken for him. He never did anything to break it. He became empty, full of despair, and placing all, all of our despair, all of our discontentment on him. When he died on that cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the fullness of our greatest sense of envy and covetousness and longings for something that never satisfied. That all came on him. He bore that for me and for you. And when he did that, and when he told this woman, drink from my well, Drink from me the living water welling up. It is truly a wellspring of life. If you just drink from that, you will never grow thirsty. It's In many ways, that Samaritan woman undoes what happened in the garden. Eve, who was content, turned to something that never satisfies. This woman, who was absolutely discontent and turning to all these things that never satisfy, found full contentment. And the only one truly satisfies. And women, my dear sisters in Christ, you are rich. You are living in abundance. And this is not about money or possessions. When I look around, I see so many people who are so richly blessed. Teenagers, college students, adults, you have everything that God would want you to have. And there is no pursuit in your life that is going to gain you satisfaction. Only depression, anxiety, sorrows, grievings, misery, when you pursue something other than God at the end of that pursuit. Only our Savior can quench your soul. Only our Savior, through the work that he did for us at the cross, can make you happy and can free you. On this Mother's Day, whether you are a mother of young children, teenagers, older children, whether you have a mother who is younger or older, and you have to call them, whether you are one day going to be a mother, know this, is that your children do not satisfy you, and your husband doesn't. You should not be looking for them to do to satisfy you. And if you're discouraged by them and frustrated, it's probably because you're still looking for them to satisfy you. And that is a lonely, despairing, 
dark pursuit. It is a dead end. Only Christ can satisfy. And it can't be the, oh, husband, you never satisfy me. I'm going to Jesus. You're the, you, you just always disappoint me. I'm going to Jesus. It's, I love you, but I need Jesus more. And I know that when I pursue Christ more, I will be able to love you in the right way. That's to your children. That's to your, mo- your own mothers, own fathers. God is going to bless you. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray A.W. Tozer's prayer over you. And I hope it really speaks to you. Father, we want to know you. But our cowardly hearts fear to give up its toys. We cannot part with them without inward bleeding. And we do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. We come trembling, but we do come. Please root from our hearts all those things which we have cherished so long and which have become a very part of our living selves so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall you make the place of your feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for yourself will be the light of it, and there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen.